Take your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, and open them to Luke chapter 7. Back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, verse 11. And really, today's passage is fitting, as last week was Resurrection Sunday. We celebrated the Lord's resurrection, the Lord's conquering of of death in His own life. We celebrate that today in the life of another. Today, we come to chapter 7, verse 11. And we see that again, Jesus raises the dead. Jesus has power over the dead, has the ability to command life and give life and take life and control life. And so I hope today uh, we will see a picture of the Lord that is both uh, awe-inspiring and yet encouraging and, and motivation for us to serve Him in a greater capacity. Now, as we have walked through the Gospels and even up through Luke up to this point, but even in our personal lives, reading and studying the other Gospels, we have seen Jesus perform many wonderful and powerful miracles in His life and ministry on earth, right? In fact, in the next passage that we look at is John the Baptist is in prison. He's going to send messengers to Jesus and ask, are you the one we're looking for? Or should we expect another? And Jesus references His miracles, references His works. He says the blind have sight, they see, the deaf they can hear, the lepers they're clean, cleansed, the the dead are raised, the poor have good news, the lame can walk. He's saying I have performed miracles as a testimony to my divinity, as a witness that I am sent of God. So we know and have seen and read about many miracles that Christ has performed throughout the Gospels, throughout His life. John chapter 2, he turns water into wine. Also John 2, we're told, and other places we see as he deals with the Pharisees and even his own disciples, Jesus is a man who can read the hearts of individuals, read the minds of individuals, the very thoughts of other people. We see him in other passages even walking on water. Miracles that we are very familiar with but are nonetheless very divine and powerful, supernatural. Through the Gospels and His life, we've seen that Jesus has the authority to command the physical elements of creation, like the human body. But we've also seen that He has the authority to command the spiritual elements of creation. Several times, He casts out demons. In His own life, He's resisted and overcome temptation. We've seen Him exercise authority over the weather. The health of strangers over the molecules of materials in the world. And as we're looking at today, even authority over life and death. Most notably in raising Lazarus from the dead, right? John chapter 11. But even in other instances. In fact, church, I think aside from his own death and his own resurrection, the most powerful Miracles we witness of Christ is when He raises someone from the dead. Those are the most definitive proofs, proof of, of His divine Sonship. That He is the very Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. Nothing says that more than Him having the ability to give life to the dead. Right. Throughout the Gospels, we've seen Him give life to little children. We've seen Him give life... To adults, even in the passage we looked at before, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, from a distance, 
spatial distance, He prevents death in a servant. You can just desire it and speak it and death is prevented. And even in contrast to that, the passage we're looked at, looking at today, death is not only prevented, death is overcome as He speaks life back into an individual. But today's passage is, I think, rather unique. And in all the other instances of Christ raising someone from the dead, today's is a little different. Because Jesus here in this passage acts without a single word spoken to Him. The resurrection we see today is unsolicited. At other times, there are requests made to Jesus. Just like with the centurion in the passage before, he sends word to Jesus, will you prevent my servant from dying? And Jesus acts at the request of others or acts according to the faith of others. Uh, people pleading with him, begging with him. But in this passage, not a word is spoken to him. No faith is demonstrated. No pleading takes place. He's not begged to raise this individual from the dead. He's not forced to raise this individual from the dead. In fact, the passage says he raised this man from the dead because he was moved in his heart. He performs a miracle because he wanted to out of his own desire. What, what we see today is not just Christ raising someone from the dead. We see a picture of divine love. A miracle issued out of his own heart from his own love, His own desire to do so. It's an act purely out of love. Purely out of compassion. As we see in verse 13. So I don't, I don't want us to just see a divine miracle take place in the resurrection of this individual, which we should see that. I want us to see even further a divine picture of love. We see in Christ a divine heart of compassion. We see divine care being extended to the helpless and to the hopeless and to the broken. Because He's not just meeting the need of this dead man. He's meeting the need of His mother primarily. In fact, the very language and the very structure of the passage tells us that this story isn't so much about the dead man being raised back to life as it is about His mother having her needs met through Christ. This isn't a miracle that comes out of the love of Jesus, the heart of the Lord. Again, no one had to ask Him to perform this miracle. No one even really knew He could. He does so out of His own heart. Isn't that a picture of the Gospel? It most certainly is. So what we look at today in Luke chapter 7 verses 11 through 17 is a special miracle performed out of tenderness, intimacy, and mercy of Christ. It's a passage that quickly connects to our desperate spiritual state in life. Let's look at Luke chapter 7 verse 11. Read the passage and walk back through it. In verse 11, Luke writes and he says, Soon afterward, after he had healed the centurion's servant, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. 
As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up, and he touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The first thing I want us to observe out of this passage is in, is in verse 11 and verse 12. We come upon a very desperate scene, a very desperate state. In fact, what Luke is describing in those two verses is a scene of monumental desperation. It's a funeral procession. Leaving the city on the way to the burial plot to bury this young man. We don't know anything about the young man. We don't know anything about his mother, really. No historical background, no family history, nothing of that sort. We simply know that they live in Nain, which is about 25 miles south of Capernaum, south of Nazareth, on the way to Jerusalem. It's a small village. We do have a few identifiers of the other characters aside from Christ. We know that the dead man is a young man. We don't know how young he is. But the passage calls him a man and not a boy. And Christ calls him a young man. Christ being about early 30s at this time. So we can presume the man who's dead is in his late teenage years or early 20s maybe. We know that he's the only son of his mother. That's about it concerning him. We don't know how he died, how long he'd been dead. With the mother, we only know that she's a widow. She's buried her husband previously. And now she's burying her only son. That's all we know about her. But those two things are enough to tell us something significant about these people. Specifically this woman. She's been to too many personal funerals, hasn't she? It's hard enough to lay rest a family member it's even more difficult to lay to rest a spouse some of us know that some of us have been around loved ones who've lost their spouse that's tough on top of that it's not just difficult to lay your spouse to rest it's also difficult to bury your own child some of us know that as well and even those who don't know what it's like to lose a child know that it is devastating, it's tragic, it's unnatural, it's grievous, it burdens our hearts. Well, that's the, that's the woman we find here. She's a woman who has essentially lost everything. She's a woman who is now alone. And she's emotionally wrecked. This is a grievous moment in her life as she's walking out with tears in her eyes according to this passage 
out of the city gates with her young, lifeless, only son being carried before her. Surrounded by other mourners with her. Not having her spouse with her, her best friend, her most intimate companion, her closest confidant. She's burying her child alone. And she's burying him at whatever age, a young age. She's laying him in his grave in his prime. There's something about innocence there when you buried a child. There's something about uh, losing a promise there when you bury a child. His future is being erased. And this, this funeral that she's attending is a funeral that forces you to realize life is short and life is painful and life is unfair and that sometimes life gets cut unnaturally short. The funeral she's attending, church, is a funeral that leaves her hopeless and broken. That's the woman we're dealing with in the passage. And we can add something to that since we know that she's laying to rest her only son. It's especially agonizing. What we find described in verse 11 and 12, what, what scene we come upon at the gates of Nain here, according to Luke, is a tragic scene. It is the most tragic of funerals that we can understand and identify with. At least in some way, we can see the devastation of this woman's heart. We can see the desperate state of life that she's in. In such moments like this, having buried a husband, Burying your only son. These moments have deep and lasting effects upon a person. Her world right now in her heart and in her mind and in her eyes is crushed. She is in the pit of despair. And this is the woman that Jesus finds at the gate. This is the woman that He lays His eyes on. This is the woman who is in such a desperate state. But that's not just it. She's not just emotionally wrecked. She's now without a protector and a provider. The husband and this, these customs and this time was the one who provided for the family. She didn't have a job outside of the home. She couldn't get a job outside of the home that was reputable. And her husband is no longer there and no longer in her life to pro provide for her, to defend her, to speak and act on her behalf, to, to protect her if need be. And in these times, if the husband was gone, then the oldest son was to assume that role and responsibilities. And now she's laying the oldest son to rest. She has no one now. She's lost her provider, her protector, defender. And she has no other sons to take his place. So now, she's not only a widow, but she would be poverty stricken. She would be poor. She would have no ownership of anything anymore. No voice in the community. No way to make a living. No way to bring any income in. When she buries her son, church, she buries her future. 
She buries her own life. She has no one now. Even if she has daughters, she has no one to take care of her family, take care of herself. And because of that, she is going to wake up in the morning with no son, no husband, and no hope. This is the woman we find. This, this is who is coming out of a gate that meets Christ. It's no wonder there's a considerable crowd with her. Whether she was popular or had a good reputation, whatever, there's a considerable crowd with her because they know the devastation that's occurred in her life. They know the tragedy she's going through. And it's odd, isn't it? They, she might be surrounded by such a large group of people, but you know in her heart at this moment, she feels totally alone. Totally helpless. I would say that she is in the most desperate state of her life, the lowest low of her life, having lost all that really matters to her in life. But what she doesn't realize is that she is walking out of town and she's about to encounter the one who is the hope of the world. And what she doesn't realize is that she's coming out of the community to bury her son, but she's about to encounter the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. She's about to encounter a man who will change her life forever, won't he? She may be in a desperate state, but the next thing we find in this passage is in verses 13, 14, and 15. Christ has a display of love that He shows to her. There's a display of love that takes place. Verse 13, When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. And then He came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And He said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. The love of the Lord can never be overemphasized. In fact, as we've studied through Luke and as you've read about Christ, I hope you are struck to the core about how patient, loving, and compassionate Jesus is towards sinners. Those who spurn His name, rebel against His law, are the very people He's showing care for, love towards, giving hope to. He has, church, we have a Savior who has a heart for the weak and for the hurting and the broken and the destitute. Those who are in a desperate state are the very ones Christ has a heart for. And here's yet another passage in Luke that emphasizes the great love that Jesus has towards sinners, not only to forgive them, but to take care of and meet all their needs. Much like a loving father, a concerned shepherd, a protector, a refuge, a shelter. That's who our Lord is. And again, I, I want to point out that it is the undeniable center point of this passage that Jesus acts out of His own heart here. It's His heart for this woman, His compassion for this woman, that is the sole reason for His stopping the funeral procession. 
His sole reason for interceding on her behalf. He and his disciples probably are coming into Nain about late noon. They've just left Capernaum, which again is about 25 miles south. That's a full day's walk. They enter into the community. They're coming into the gate. They're exhausted. They've traveled a long distance. And then he lays his eyes on this woman. And he lays his eyes on that lifeless body of her son being carried out in front of her. And he can see complete and total loss written on her face. He understands the tears coming down her eyes. And instantly, Luke actually says, verse 13, when he saw her, when his eyes were laid upon her, he was moved with compassion for her. Don't ignore that. She hasn't clung to His feet. She hasn't come in faith. She didn't send messengers like the centurion. She did absolutely nothing to earn this miracle from Christ. Not one ounce of activity has come from her. Simply, Jesus looked at her and had a heart for her. Compassion upon her. Moved. For her. That is Christ. The Lord has a heart for the helpless, a heart for the hopeless, a heart for those who cannot take care of themselves, for the weak, the broken. And this is what He does. He meets their needs. Other translations actually say that He saw her and His heart went out to her. It's a deep movement in the Lord's heart and in His mind. This tragic event touches Him. And it's a tragic event to Him because He knows what the effects of sin does upon humanity. The effects of sin cause a young man to die prematurely. The effects of sin have ruined and corrupted God's good creation And this tragic scene grips the Lord. And so what He does next in verse 13 and 14 is fueled and motivated out of His own heart by His own love. It is a display of love for this woman. He issues to her two statements. He first says, Do not weep. He addresses her emotional state. Dry your tears. Don't fear. Do not be in distress. It's a comforting statement, isn't it? Don't mourn any longer. It's also a comforting statement of control, right? There's no need for you to weep any longer. Trust in what's about to happen. Trust in what I'm going to do. What I'm going to show you. Find strength. And what's about to happen. But he also is going to issue a statement to the young man who's dead that will meet this woman's needs. He stops the funeral procession. He places his hands on the casket. He doesn't touch the body. 
He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't ask for the source of the man's death. He touches the casket. And He speaks. And when Christ speaks, the dead are raised. Here's the source of life. Breathing life back into a corpse. We find here the same thing that happens in Genesis 2 when God breathes life into Adam. We find here the same Creator God exercising authority. The same God who brings something out of nothing. The same God who will look at Mary and Martha in John 11 and say about Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. I can give life to whom I want. That's what He does here. He addresses the lifeless body and He calls him back to life and He speaks and says, Young man, get up. I say to you, I speak to you, arise, have life again. I'm the one who commands life and has control over death and I'm acting out of compassion for this woman. Breathe again. Churches, it's in this single moment as the body is on its way to the grave, out the city gates, in the single moment, with a single statement, Jesus erases this woman's desperate condition. It's all taken away. And He has just proven Himself compassionate, strong, merciful, loving, and able to meet all of our needs. For who would look at a man like this and say, you can raise the dead, but you cannot address my circumstances? No one. He has just performed one of the greatest miracles He will perform outside of His own resurrection. And He leaves no doubt for the crowd who's watching Him. This is a divine man with divine power. And so suddenly, verse 15, this lifeless body springs back to life. And He sits up. And lest anyone think that it's just reflexes or Jesus performed some trick, the dead man now speaks. There's conscious function. He's coherent. His mind is back. And he speaks. And Jesus takes him and gives him back to his mother. Here's the proof. Your son is alive. And Jesus has just portrayed his divine love at the last moment of hope for this woman by giving her her son back. He meets her greatest needs. Restores her future. Heals her heart. Gives her hope. And opens her eyes to the truth of who He is. Naturally, verses 16 and 17, if we see Christ take care of that desperate state of the woman through His display of love, then we see a dramatic change that takes place. Such a divine work as this grips the crowd of people who are present. And remember, it's a very, very large crowd of people. 
There's a considerable crowd in the funeral. Then on top of that, Jesus has walked into town with His great crowd following Him. And then on top of that, the disciples, and they all get to witness this divine miracle of Jesus speaking life back into a man and meeting this woman's needs. And such a work startles them. It shakes them to the very core. And we understand that, right? I've never been to a funeral where a dead man sat up and began speaking, and I don't want to be at a funeral where a dead man stands up and begins speaking because it would terrify me. I mean, this is an event that these people witness with their own eyes and hear with their own ears that rattles them for years to come. In fact, Luke says in verse 16, they are seized by fear. They're gripped by, by fear. Frozen in their steps. They're arrested where they are. And it's not a fear that makes them cower away in shame or a fear that sends them running. It's a fear that realizes they are in the presence of divinity. It's a fear that fuels and motivates their worship. It's a fear that makes them realize they are in the presence of something and someone far greater than themselves. And that they have no control over the situation, but that man does. It's a fear that results in glorifying God. Verse 16, fear sees them all and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Do you see the dramatic change that's taken place because of Jesus? This group of people went from mourning to worshiping. They went from grief to glorifying God. This woman who was in despair is now filled with hope, and love, and excitement, and gratefulness. She also is glorifying God. This is a holy fear that's just been produced in their hearts. They had no idea they were on the road to encounter Jesus. But when they did, everything changed for them. The mourning has been taken away. The confusion has been taken away. The grief has dissipated. And it has all been replaced with Eagerness for God. Glory for God. Worship for God. Celebration for God. This, for these people, this is an event that changes the way you view life and death. This means that in some way there is at least some power in the universe that can conquer death. That can give us relief from death. Help us escape from death. This is a, an event that changes the way you view God, isn't it? Certainly changes the way you view Christ. It's an event that you would pass down for generations to come. It's an event that would never escape your memory. It would never escape your heart forever. To the day you die, you would remember that time Jesus rose the young man from the grave. This unexpected event for these people, for this woman, 
would resonate with them for a lifetime. It changes them in such a way that they can only give credit to God. They can only acknowledge His work. They declare God has visited His people. The very same thing that was said about the newborn Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Or the coming birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. They will say, God has visited His people. And here they say, God has visited His people. Now, I do want to say this event in verses 11 through 17 really happened. This isn't a real account. We call this historical reality. But I think there's something about this passage that makes it even more powerful and significant to us. Because we, too, are in a very desperate state of life. Only we're not the grief-stricken mother, are we? We're the dead man in the coffin. And that's because of sin. It's not just that this woman in this passage is in a desperate state and hopeless, but it's also that I see myself in this woman. More so, I see myself in the man who's in the casket. I have no hope. No answer. No future. No life apart from Christ. That's the effects of sin. Sin makes us this dead man in the casket. Sin makes us spiritually dead. Sin separates us from God. And we, apart from Jesus, are found to be in the most desperate state known to humanity. On top of that, we too are like the dead man and we are currently, apart from Jesus, being carried to our grave. Which is eternity in hell separated from God. The urgency of sharing the gospel with people and with our loved ones and our co-workers and people in this community is increased exponentially when you realize that we're not only spiritually dead, but we're spiritually dead and out the gate. And the funerals happened. And we're being carried to our tomb. And if Jesus doesn't meet us at the gate, we're doomed. If the Gospel isn't taken to our loved ones and our family members, now, they may be at their grave tomorrow. We are in a desperate state apart from Christ. We are in the same position as this dead man because of sin. That's the problem, church, of every human being. Sin destroys us spiritually. It separates us from God. It puts us under the judgment, condemnation, and wrath of a perfect, powerful God. Simply put it, apart from Christ, if you're not a believer, if you don't have the salvation of Jesus, it cannot get worse for you. Sin has condemned us. That is the desperate state of humanity if we don't have Jesus, if we don't believe the Gospel. But, just like in this passage, Christ has displayed His love for us. And not when we came begging Him 
And not because we had enough faith or have done enough good things in the community or not because we cling to His feet tightly enough. He showed His love to this woman out of His own heart just like He shows His love to us out of His own heart. He looks upon us in our desperate state and He is moved with compassion and moved with love for us. And just like He met this woman's needs, He can meet our need of forgiveness. And just like He raised this young man to life with His Word, so too He can raise us to life with His Word. Christ has displayed His love for us by dying the death we deserve. By taking that very thing that caused us to be dead, sin, and taking it upon Himself, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and dying on the cross that was rightfully ours so that He can say, you're forgiven. You're reconciled. You're made new. You're alive. This story we can see in our, ourselves within it. And, and unlike this woman who lost everything, Christ gave up everything so that you and I might be raised to life. That we might sit up in the grave and speak to the glory of God and be presented to the Father in the end, blameless and pure and righteous in Christ. Church, that's our salvation. That we were in a desperate state and yet Christ loved us and displayed His love for us by dying on the cross for us and forgiving us of our sins. Giving us new life, new heart, new desires. A new Father. Again, unsolicited. Christ came for you before you were you. Christ came for you before you knew Christ existed. Christ died for your sins before you knew you were a sinner. The unsolicited love of Christ is the free gift given to us. And, just like His show of love in raising this young man changed the crowd, so too it changes us, doesn't it? Romans 6.13, Paul says, We now live as those who are brought from death to life. What an interesting statement. We live in a world where everything goes from life to death. To Christians, we are a people who have gone from death to life. Because the same one who spoke to this young man speaks into our hearts and regenerates us and gives us life. And so now, we have gone from death to life and we live a life that has been touched by and changed by God. We live a life of proof that Jesus can raise the spiritually dead. And so we too should respond like this crowd, glorifying God. Hearts that have been touched by Christ and hearts that have, been, that have been changed by Christ and given life by Christ should be hearts that glorify Christ. And so what 
once was sinful in our lives that we indulged in, we now renounce and fight against and resist, right? And godliness, which we once didn't care about, is now our constant pursuit. And holiness, which we didn't care a thing about, is now a desire. And eternity with Christ, which was rarely upon our minds before salvation, is now our ever-present longing, isn't it? We are a people, if we know Christ, who are changed. There has been within us this dramatic change. We now, instead of living for ourselves, we live for Christ. We put Christ first, don't we? Or we strive to. Because a dramatic change has happened within us. That's what happens when you realize that apart from Christ, you're in a desperate state. But Christ has displayed His love for you by dying on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And when you find forgiveness in Christ, you are dramatically changed forever. You're not perfect, but you're a living testimony to the work and gospel of Christ. That's us, church. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and life. That, that really is true if we know salvation in Jesus. For we've been spiritually raised and one day we will be completely raised with Christ. This is the gift freely given to all who come in faith to Jesus. Can we just be honest for a moment here? Some of you feel like this woman, like you're in a hopeless state. A vicious cycle. You have no joy in God anymore. You've backslidden. You don't practice the spiritual disciplines. You're digging a deeper hole in your life. You have no more satisfaction. No more fulfillment. Question your purpose. And the walk you once had with God is no longer existent. The good news is you can come to Christ who will breathe life into you, will rejuvenate that life He's given you, refresh the life in your heart. Some of us, some of you are unbelievers. And you think you know Christ and you think you've been saved and you think you walk with God. You have no idea what it's like to have life. You're a dead person trying too hard. And you need to come to the Lord in faith for life. But then there's that third group of us where we too often neglect what Christ has done for us in our salvation. And we too often remain silent about it. We too often thank the, don't thank the Lord for it. And we need to come to a place today realizing that I was the dead man. Christ spoke life into me. That is my salvation and I must proclaim it. I must live for the glory of God. I must worship Him, devote myself to Him, adore Him for what He's done for me. My life should be all consumed with Christ. That dramatic change needs to take place within me. The good news is we can all come to Christ in faith. Whether that be repentance whether that be for salvation, whether that be to motivate worship of Him and, and sharing the gospel, evangelism, and so on and so forth, we can all come to Christ. We can all come to this man who looks upon this woman in compassion, raises her son, and meets her needs, and glorifies God by doing it. 
The beauty about this passage is none of us can stand back now and say, I am too unlovable. Because we see Christ acting out of His own heart, His own love, His own compassion for a complete stranger. It means any of us can come, even as a complete stranger to God, and find this compassion, find this life. O Lord in heaven, If you do not raise the dead and if you do not breathe life into the spiritually dead, I do not stand here today. If you, Lord, do not give life to those who are dead in their sins, if you do not forgive, if you do not speak into our hearts, Lord, I have nothing, I am nothing, and I know nothing. But praise God, O oh Lord, that You do speak life into the dead. That You do raise those who are dead and separated by sin. You do wipe away sin and forgiveness through faith. Because of that, Lord, we as Your children have everything. Oh Lord, I am not adequate enough or equipped enough to communicate the significance of what You have done in this passage for this woman who was hopeless and in despair out of Your own compassion You, you met her needs. A group of people glorified God because of it. The significance of that, O Lord, is eternal. We see Your heart in this passage, O Lord. We see Your power in this passage, O Lord. And we couple that and say, this is a picture of the Gospel, a heart to save and the power to give life. That is what You've done to us. That's what You've done for us. God, I am not equipped to communicate that well enough. I beg of You today, let Your Spirit pierce our hearts with this truth so deeply that joy for the salvation bursts forth from us and the Gospel bursts forth from us. We must tell people that You not only have the heart to forgive, but the power to forgive. Thank You, O Lord. May we be moved in devotion and worship of You now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.